Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your approximately monthly look at the world of evidence. Today we've got an eclectic mix dominated by new research papers in the BMJ, so one of our research editors is going to be feeling very smug about the content of our podcast this month. Coming up, we're back to school and with that comes autumn viruses and in the UK COVID's on the rise again. We're going to look at some new research on how good um, the elusive lateral flow tests are at detecting infection among people with symptoms of COVID. And Juan's going to give us an update on the COVID inquiry, which is being run by the BMJ. We'll touch a bit on workforce morale. Since the pandemic, things have been pretty hard for clinicians out there. We'll look at a new paper on the association between burnout in doctors and patient outcomes. And we're going to have a look at an interesting paper on breast cancer. So a bit of oncology, which is... um, Possibly a first for talk evidence. I'm not sure we've covered oncology before. I'm Helen MacDonald, Research Integrity and Publication Ethics Editor for the BMJ and BMJ Journals and Talk Evidence Geek. And avid listeners may have spotted I wasn't here last month, which I think might be the first ever talk evidence that I didn't actually record. And today I'm joined by Juan and Joe. Uh, Juan, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine and Research here at the Heine University in Dusseldorf. And you're also an Analysis Editor as well on the BMJ, which is very relevant to your COVID inquiry um, story later. Uh, Joe, tell us about yourself. Hi, Helen. Juan and I did our best to fill your big shoes last month. Hopefully everyone (laughs) loved the episode, even though you weren't with us. Uh, My name is Joe Ross. I'm a professor of medicine and public health at Yale and also the U.S. Outreach and an associate research editor at the BMJ. So let's start with COVID and your, uh, I'm saying this is your inquiry, Juan. Um, There is going to be a public inquiry in the UK, which will document what decisions were made in COVID, but also how and why they were made. And the BMJ are running this series about how evidence was used to shape the response to the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK, where we often heard this word, we were being guided by the science. So tell us a bit about the series, Juan, and... uh, how it's been received so far? Well, I think that this series is uh, super interesting because it covers um, what is the response of the government uh, in in the face of the pandemic. And the reason I found it interesting, uh, even though I don't live in the UK, is because there are multiple inquiries across the world in different countries. And um, and the BMJ taking this uh, series to figure out what went wrong, uh, it could be a very interesting um, starting point for discussions elsewhere. Um, of course, since I'm not living in the UK, I cannot tell the details of how the series relates to the 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 series of 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 events that led to this inquiry. Uh, but I do think that some of these topics on how, for example, uh, the science was interpreted, for example, for testing, for isolation, for quarantine, and for decisions about restrictions are relevant to, to water community. Um, That's interesting. And Joe, have you, have you heard much about this series in the U.S.? 
Well, despite being a BMJ editor, I have to say, no, not really, Um, which is interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of decisions that were made over two and a half years. And, you know, hindsight's always 2020. But it is important to look back, figure out what we know. I mean, we all like to laugh at the old, like, duck and cover uh, educational sessions, like, you know, oh, kids are supposed to get under the desk when there's a nuclear warhead approaching, right? Like, that obviously would not have helped anyone. Like, but what was that? Is that propaganda? Was that actually a good faith effort for education to try to help people? And while nothing that grotesque, obviously, was happening here with COVID, we need to think about, like, well, what did, what recommendations were made on the basis of what evidence? How can we do this better in the future? In the United States specifically, there's a lot of consternation over, you know, when the CDC suddenly changed their guidance from, you know, 10-day quarantine to a five-day quarantine while wearing a mask. What does that mean? Was that truly safe and effective? You know, the sort of reluctance to say that it was airborne, you know, and so lots of people were using those hand wipes all over surfaces, but was that really protective? Anyways, we do need to think through this. So it, it's all pretty controversial stuff, really, isn't it? Um, how has it been going down online, Quan? on social media and the like. Well, I've been follow I have heard about the series mostly because of, of the online debate about Not because you edited any. <laughs> no, 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 I haven't edited. No, no. You didn't edit any of these. Okay. No, I, I think Juan is keeping his arm out to keep maintain a distance from uh... <laughs> Yeah, um I He's like Switzerland in neutral country. <laughs> well, it's cool fun. Um, Tell us what you've seen in the most neutral way you can Juan on Twitter about this. It's very difficult because some people who are ri- that are writing these articles are uh, have a large social media following, and whenever that happens, that tends to create a lot of online debate about uh, these papers, about how balanced they are, or what's the breadth of the topics, or what's the political stance they take, and and to be honest, I do think that there are perspectives here and. Uh, and um, and this the series is supposed to be ongoing, so I do think that it would be good to hear as many voices as as possible yeah. to get the full picture. Uh, but it is supposed to be controversial, and it's supposed to be creating a lot of debate. A recent contributor to the series that went up online was about the role of modelling studies within the pandemic. Um, uh, and one of the things that um, its its authors uh, put forward is that the UK inquiry might like to consider separately whether and how economic modelling um, could or should have been part of the remit of the scientific advisory group SAGE that was um, helping the UK government. Um, but some of the individual points they pull out there is quite uh, are quite interesting, um, especially to evidence geeks like ourselves. And they talk about a lot of the problems that we saw in the pandemic. So they talk about the fact that good mathematical modelling needs to be transparent about um, the sources and the uncertainty that's in there. So they ask questions in this paper like, how can we ensure all the right disciplines and perspectives are included in the modelling efforts? Because there were people that talked about the fact that um, the perspective taken in some of the work was, was quite narrow. They asked things like, 
how can data be generated and shared between and within modeling groups to sustain a more egalitarian and robust modeling environment? So I think this is in response to the criticisms that certainly within the UK, there was um, one group that did a lot of the modeling and that those data couldn't be interrogated very easily um, by other people. And that often gives rise, I guess, to suspicion or concern when you when you can't see what's going on. Um, so calling for more transparency there. And I think another interesting thing was was this other issue they raised about public communication and understanding of modelling. And did we really understand when these models were coming out, what the underlying assumptions were, how useful they could be and how well that was um, communicated um, to the public? Uh, I'm going to pause there so we don't go on too long. Um, Juan, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think that uh, it's uh, the, the the first year, especially in the pandemic, when when you have little evidence, the models really took on, especially from people uh, of from data science saying, "Well, we got gathered this data and we're going to project it in the following months." And I remember that we made a joke that if we 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 needed to make a drinking game or something about, about a, every time you see a new curve about the pandemic early uh, projecting thousands of millions or, or or and everyone had their own curve about how things were going to play it out and, and it is likely that most of the these models got it wrong and mm. and even um newspapers i remember last year early last year we published uh, bmj uh, uh, evidence based medicine um a, a, a paper where they were cri they were criticizing the, the the display of modeling in in mainstream media for example wall street journal new york times because a, a, a lot of these papers had started having curves of 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 cases and projected curves and and a lot of the modeling was not uh, explicit what was the, what were the sources what was the code um, there there were some good examples but not so good examples uh, mm. so modeling did take over uh, the way we thought uh, about the pandemic and and the assumptions about of the modelings. Uh, were were problematic, especially when you input uh, effectiveness, uh, measures of effectiveness for which there's a great uncertainty. If mm. you put um, uh, one 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 co a coma that is different, you get and you extrapolate it to millions of people, then you can have difference in the tens of thousands of people that die or do not die based on your estimates of effectiveness and, and that has a huge public impact Joe yeah I mean it's very polite of you to put your hand up by the way well you know, <laughs> I don't want to interrupt anyone I mean modeling I, I just I think just as context for some of our listeners I mean obviously the BMJ doesn't publish a lot of modeling studies right and in part that's because you know, modeling efforts are really intended to project possibilities and, you know, what's most likely to happen. And in clinical research, particularly the clinical science at the BMJ and many of our journals, uh, it, you know, publish, it's focused on sort of what's kind of what to do in uh, based on evidence, right, not based on projections. But modeling plays really a very critical role in, in public health in terms of infectious disease outbreaks, other pandemics. Um, you know, it just thinking about population needs. Um, and in response to kind of the 
being caught sort of flat-footed, I would say, for instance. On the U.S. side, the CDC uh, was uh, given a $200 million grant to build out their, uh, you know, what they're calling their sort of pandemic weather service, a, no, a large new kind of project, you know, uh, modeling unit that's intended to forecast the possibilities of these kinds of pandemics going forward. And these resources are, re- are really important and needed. And I thought this uh, this analysis article did a really nice job of laying out how what are the best practices, how these modeling units should be working together, how to make sure that the data can be pressure tested and, you know, is really sort of what's the inputs, how are, you know, what are the sensitivity analyses, you know, and all those various parameters that, you know, create uncertainty around the models, but they're needed because, you know, we don't have the evidence. That's why we're doing projections. Well, I think we have to move on from modeling now. And I think we have to get more real. I think people don't want projections. They want to, They want that evidence, Joe. So I think it's time for us to turn to your paper. Oh, you, you want, you want can... to talk about diagnostic accuracy of COVID tests? <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, the research team have been uh, publishing more on COVID and more on diagnostic accuracy tests. And this paper on lateral flow, the sort of instant um, pregnancy test style um, COVID tests that we're all very familiar with or were familiar with, um, not not many people are doing them now over here in the UK because they are not freely available um, anymore. And actually, they, they're kind of quite missing from, from a lot of guidance now. Um, but it's been doing very well online, non- nonetheless. Uh, and there's an interesting meta question here, I think, which is really how good are these tests at picking up COVID these days, by which I think we really mean among people who've probably had COVID before, maybe been vaccinated, maybe have milder symptoms and maybe have an Omicron variant compared to the ones that we heard about early on. So, Joe, tell us a bit about this paper. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to. And rapid tests are certainly less freely available, uh, I think, in the US too. The Biden administration just they concluded their last mail-out of tests if you requested them. So they're no longer being shipped around for people to use. you got to buy them in the, in the pharmacy, and they're expensive. And the question has always been, you know, how useful are they? You know, I, I don't know about you guys. When I had COVID, I probably did three or four rapid tests before finally testing positive. Uh, so there's this... Uh, yes, I would concur. But but it wasn't just that I did three or four. It was that it took like that number of days. Right, like, that number of the days. Test on the, that number of days. <laughs> right, so <laughs> it was like positive. day four after symptoms, I finally <laughs> tested positive. Um, and that has important implications, particularly, you know, we know that people are contagious before they're testing positive, or at least that was true with the alpha variant and wild type variant. Is it still true with the Omicron variant? You know, I think that actually remains unclear. Um, but they, this study itself, which we published, I think, you know, actually does provide some data to answer these questions. And this was done by a group in the Netherlands where they took uh, test results, both a rapid antigen test and a PCR test for about 6,500 people uh, with COVID symptoms who are over the age of 16. So that's important, too. Right. This is not for kids. This is uh, essentially 16 and up. It might also be worth saying, Joe, that these are also people at quite quite high risk of having COVID because they were pitching up to regional testing centres in the Netherlands and either they felt unwell or they'd been in close contact with someone who had COVID or they travelled from somewhere that was quite high prevalence of COVID at the time. 
Um, and they determined the sensitivity and specificity of the rapid test. And they used three different types of tests. I'm not familiar with them because actually there's different ones that are available in the United States. But you guys may know them. They did Flowfex, MPBio, and ClinitTest. Um, and essentially what they found were uh, the overall sensitivities of the rapid test ranged between 70 and 80 percent, depending on the type of rapid test used. Uh, but it was very sensitive, these sensitivities, uh, to whether um, patients were getting tested as a confirmatory test uh, versus whether um, they were just getting tested for other reasons. Um, and so when it was a confirmatory test, rates were between, you know, essentially 84 and 94% sensitivity. So when you say confirmatory, you mean those are people who were going up to that test center because they felt ill? Well, yes. So the confirmatory tests uh, were individuals who had done an at-home test before coming to the test center for a PCR test and getting both the rapid test again along with the PCR. So these are people who tested positive at home and then came. So, okay. so the, like these really were a, a higher probability. <laughs> so it's like a double check test a, a, almost. Exactly. And even still, right, the, these, rap, these rapid tests uh, were only a, had only a sensitivity of 84 to 94%. But I think the. And what about in the others then? 52. Oh, yeah, down in the 50s, exactly one. Oh, so that's not so good, is it? No. So you're just turning up with symptoms to get your PCR test and you're doing the <laughs> lateral flow. And it, hold on, this, this is different to what I thought. Exactly. And, and, and then just to, you know, one more uh, little piece of hay on the camel's back that may break your confidence in these tests, which is that, you know, when you look specifically um, around the Omicron phase, the sensitivity drops more, right? And so, then uh, that's like, that's the biggest challenge, right? Right, so, you know, we know this is the most common variant, although it keeps kind of modifying slightly, but it's still the Omicron variant. Um, and these rapid tests, just like Helen, you and I experienced when we had to test, test, test day after day, um, are not always picking up the virus. So actually, when we reflect on what the national policies are for us over here now, which is essentially if you feel ill, then stay away from people. Um, that is probably <laughs> the most reasonable approach because actually if we were doing testing instead, um, we would be more likely potentially to be sort of falsely reassuring ourselves um, when we felt ill that we didn't have COVID when we got one of these uh, test results done. So actually, we can all feel maybe slightly happy that we're running out of these tests. Well, I think if you feel ill, wear a mask, stay away, stay and home. go get a PCR test. <laughs> I think that's really where we're, well, we're headed. Well, they're definitely not available to us <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it also depends on on what's the cascade about uh, around the test, because the test was only one part of the policy then it's a very complex uh, intervention where people need to understand what's the role of the test, what does the t positive test mean, w how many days you're supposed to be isolated, what's the support you have for isolation, and what type of isolation you're, you, you're having. And, and currently, uh, the, the support for isolation is, is, is lower. And, 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 and and when you have people with three doses of the vaccine and what it means to be having COVID 
is changing even culturally for people the drive to engage in some of this measure uh, some of these preventive measures may also change going to move away from COVID now onto a different topic, uh, burnout in doctors. Um, this is a topic which I guess patients and the public might have varying interest in, so the well-being of doctors per se, um, unless they're just very generally kind and caring people. But I think they probably will be more interested in the fact that there is an association between their doctors being burnt out and the quality of the healthcare that's provided by doctors who are very burned out. And I think healthcare systems should probably be interested in that too. So this paper that was recently published um, is really trying to put some numbers around that concept because it kind of feels quite intuitive that people who are burned out and not functioning particularly well um, are are not going to work that well. The authors of this paper say that there was a meta-analysis done in 2022 that looked at the association between burnout and self-reported medical errors by doctors. And there are another two systematic reviews that look at well-being and burnout and patient safety, but those were narrative reviews, so they didn't give um, any numbers. So so that's what these authors were setting out to find for us. Um, Juan, will you tell us a bit about the paper? Well, yes, uh, this is a um, very traditional systematic review. They've, they've searched many databases and they've identified uh, 170 observational studies with over uh, 239,000 physicians. And I think it's very interesting if, if uh, the readers look at um, figure one because they thought about how burnout relates to the medical profession and how that trickles down into patient safety. So, for example, uh, how does relate to career development, career choice regrets, productivity loss, job dissatisfaction. So, burnout, how it trickles down into that category and then subsequently into uh, safety events. Um, so, if uh, the 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 bottom line is that they 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 found that of course burnout is uh, relates to uh, poor outcomes in all of in, in almost all these categories and that also trickles down to increase um, patient safety incidents. There's a um, I think there's an odds ratio of 2.04 confidence interval 1.69 to 2.40. Five. Of course, all of these studies, since they are conducted, they are observational studies across different settings. Uh, you're supposed to find a lot of heterogeneity, uh, um, uh, considering um, the, the 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 participants, the 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 settings in which we were measured. But uh, basically, they 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 following this logic framework, they had these very interesting findings. And they mentioned some uh, tricky research words, which Juan, I thought you might like to debunk for us as our resident systematic review and meta-analysis geek, which was, they said, well, in fact, they didn't say, somebody writing an editorial about this piece said, a notable strength of this review are the meta-regressions, which allow deeper understanding of the contextual influences. What do they really mean by that? So, um, since 
all of these studies are conducted in different types of professionals and different settings, the results are supposed to be heterogeneous. So when you do a meta-analysis, uh, you get a single measure, but all of this, uh, uh, all of the individual studies point to different directions. So you do try to figure out of how much of this variation across studies you can explain um, due to differences in the studies. So it's very similar to other regression analysis, but they're mostly based on study characteristics. For instance, they found uh, more positive associations in those uh, studies that uh, involve uh, professionals from emergency medicine or intensive care, and it mostly this phenomenon mostly affected uh, younger healthcare professionals. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, based on that, when you look at the entire pool estimate that is highly heterogeneous, uh, you can sort of start to understand what are the possible determinants of, of this phenomenon. And they're mostly exploratory, but they're they're trying to explain something. That was a very full explanation. Joe, tell us what you're about itching to say. No, I was just going to add, I mean, there's obviously, you know, one of the challenges here is there's like a survival bias, right? So older physicians may have just been, you know, have gotten accustomed to being burned out and c continue on and they just, they do their thing. They haven't dropped out of the workforce yet, whereas the younger physicians experiencing burnout may be more likely to leave and transition out and so on. That's interesting. If we zoom out from the meta-regressions and have a look at the linked editorial, um, there were some interesting points in there that we might want to discuss. Firstly, they mentioned that burnout undermines professional engagement, that it's fundamentally rooted in the work environment, although it manifests in individuals. And so burnout, they were arguing, was an indicator of a dysfunctional workplace, which I think is, to me, was actually quite an interesting thing to hear because you always view... You know, if you are beginning to feel burn, burned out, you feel that somehow that is mostly an individual thing that is your fault um, rather than or some inherent characteristic to do with you. So I found that interesting to read. And thirdly, that healthcare providers need to see burnout as a risk to patient safety that must be dealt with like um, other patient safety risks. And they call for more research about how burnout impacts on patient care. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that because I, I sort of enjoyed the editorial and then I read down to this point and I thought, is that the point? Do we need to know more about how it impacts on care or do we really need to see more research that's looking at trying to actually alter burnouts and then see if patient care improves? I mean, I think uh, that um, the first thing is that the research is, was very well done because they really thought about the link of burnout and patient safety. But um, at the risk of stating the obvious, I mean, healthcare professionals are human beings too. And regardless of what, I mean, we want to improve patient safety, but we want those human beings to be uh, uh, well, right? So uh, our main objective for reducing burnout, uh, of course, should, should be the well-being of those individuals, of those healthcare professionals first, and then hopefully... Um, uh, see that that improves patient safety, but uh, there's a, a matter of dignity of the, those healthcare professionals that we need to preserve. What's your perspective, Joe? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, it's both. It goes both ways. It's not just about. Obviously, it matters that the organizations aren't doing well and that patient care is worse. 
but it also it's about the dignity of the healthcare workers. And you know, in this case, right? I mean, just to make a point, right? This is all focused on physicians, but you know, the workforce is broader than that. There's nurses, there's pharmacists, there's other clinicians. You know, all, all you know, all play critical roles in taking care of patients all of whom don't get the prestige of being called a doctor. And so the, the, the burnout, the workforce burden, all of those things are, you know, even more uh, acute for them. And I know in the U.S., you know, the nursing shortages have just been uh, near impossible to address. And so many uh, people are leaving the nursing workforce because of, you know, feeling burnt out. Final paper today is on oncology. Um, often the oncology research that I see out and about seems to be on new therapies. And so I was particularly interested in this paper because it also talked about um, sort of patient priorities and what, what patients might make of these findings. So the authors say that during surgery to remove cancer, and here they're looking at early stage breast cancer, um, the aim is when you do that surgery um, to try and take all the cancerous cells out so that you don't have any left at the edge, which is the surgical margin. And if you do that, then that reduces local recurrence. But there's this concept of close margins where um, the cancer cells are maybe a millimetre or two away from the edge of the material that you've removed and that they know that there are problems down the line. Um, if that if that's the case, um, sometimes there can still be some cancer in there or, or hidden um, disease um, left there. But the authors say that margin involvement, which is what this um, concept is known as, um, and its association with distant recurrence or death um, is unclear. And, and so they want us to try and understand more, I think, about the optimal margin that should be left and guidance on what, what that uh, measure should be or how much clearance you should get um, and whether you should go in and reintervene with, I guess, more surgery or different, more aggressive um, non-surgical treatments is quite varied. And in 2014, the authors say that there was a paper, um, a, a meta-analysis looking at this, but this paper that they've done now um, includes about four times the amount of data. So this is an observational study looking at uh, women with early stage invasive breast cancer who are undergoing breast conserving surgery. It's looking at those different uh, surgical margins, so negative margins, um, close to the margin by a few millimetres and sort of being clear. And then they're looking at oncological outcomes, which include outcomes such as local recurrence, distance, recu distant recurrence and overall survival. And it's worth saying there are far fewer studies looking at that most um, critical final outcome compared to the others. And they use adjustment to deal with post-operative radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And they look at different subgroups like the stage of the tumour, um, the nodal spread, the grade, um, and chemotherapeutic and radiotherapy treatments that they, um, they have. And the studies contributing to the study um, look sort of quite good. So the ones that um, are looking at distant recurrence or overall um, survival outcomes were at quite low risk of bias and they result in moderate quality evidence. They say despite using observational studies, which I'm sure will, will um, please you, Joe. Um, but the studies that were looking at the local recurrence outcome were, were, not, uh, were not so strong, lower quality evidence. 
There are so many outcomes in there, but the general message of the paper is really that positive or close margins were associated with increased distant recurrence, local recurrence, and um, lower overall survival compared to not having any involvement or having wide um, margins. Helen, I'm glad you brought this paper to the meeting because when we first saw it come in, I mean, obviously we don't publish a ton of oncology research, but it's, some of it is so important and so critical. And what I really liked about this one was it's very pragmatic in its orientation because it gets really at the nub of the decision you know, that a surgeon and a patient need to make, particularly if you know, you'd go through the surgery and the margins aren't good, kind of the what to do. And, you know, I'm a general internist. No one's going to, you know, uh, mistake me for a, you know, a breast surgeon or anything. But you can see... I don't think anyone, <laughs> any of our listeners are going to mistake me, you or Juan for oncology experts. And one thing that makes me anxious about this paper <laughs> no, but is the fact that none of us are oncologists I, I, or surgeons. Yeah, but I, I think it's okay because this is, this is really about aggregating evidence to help inform decision making. And yes, you know, most of these are observational studies. Even at their best design, there are some challenges in interpreting them, but they do help us get a bit closer to the truth, right, in terms of understanding, well, what does it mean to not just be, um, you know, kind of have tumor on ink, you know, you know, without good margins, a negative margin, but even the concept of close, right? And they show that if it's close but not over, right, even still the risk of recurrence, both distant and local, is about, you know, 50, uh, like a, a risk, a hazard ratio of about 1.5 to 2, so near doubling of the risk. And I think most importantly, a lot of these studies are old, and that may be because practice has changed and there are far fewer opportunities for it to have, you know, kind of close or negative margins. The sort of the importance of margins has been kind of hammered home. But when you even focus on the, the studies that have been published since 2010, um, having, uh, you know, close margins as opposed to negative margins was still a risk ratio of 1.44, so 44% more likely to have um, a, uh, a distant recurrence. So this is, a, I thought, a, a really useful study. And the authors talk about the fact that they, they, they would like their work to, I think, inform those, those decisions, wouldn't they? Both at an individual level that you might sit with a patient, but also at a policy level, at a, at a guideline level, um, that, this, that this systematic review could be helpful in trying to perhaps... Um, you know, look, get get groups of experts together to look um, to look at this evidence and see see whether practice should change as a result, or, or we could kind of reduce some of the very unwarranted variation that might be there. Yeah, I will say we don't have visual abstracts for all research papers, but I really like the one for this. So, for those of you listening on the podcast, pull oh. pull up the paper, take a look at the visual abstract. It has a nice illustration of the the margins and the tumor, and uh, in addition to the hazard ratios and all the other good stuff. Any thoughts from you, Juan? Uh, I was thinking what type of evidence would be required to change current practice in the sense that when you have new prognostic data and you identify that a subgroup of women would be at a higher risk of recurrence, for example, because the, it's close to the margin, does that would that warrant, uh, for example, additional radiation uh, uh, therapy or do you need a trial that would assess whether people with this closed margin would benefit from that or not? Of course, since I am not a bre breast uh, cancer surgeon, I cannot. Uh, I, I don't 
even dare to... I think we have to hope that our surgical <laughs> and oncological colleagues who might be listening to this, yeah. maybe we hardly have any because we hardly talk about oncology. Maybe they'll get in touch and let us know. Yes, maybe they'll start a conversation on Twitter. That's all for this week. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, as Joe said, um, or however you like. You can subscribe to the Talk Evidence podcast from wherever you get your podcast from, and you can rate us, which would be lovely, especially if you want to give us a nice rating. Um, <laughs> but, o- but only if you want to give us a nice rating? What, what, what did that mean exactly? I think I'm going to bias the evidence on our rating. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, be back more, we'll be back next month with more from the world of evidence. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there.